Okay, time for a new podcast. I'm uh, a little bit different this week. I think it's my first uh, official freestyle guy. Are you a freestyle guy? I'm an official freestyle guy. Yeah, okay. Simon Tabron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dale. Yeah, I mean, you've been talking about doing this and... We've been friends a long time, and we always have good banter, so... I'm a big fan of the podcast, so... Uh, have you been listening to them? Let's get it on. Absolutely. You, which one do you like? Um, I, I'm a sucker for something March, to be honest, just just in the name... You like of, the English stuff? Just in the name of all, everything that's controversial. <laughs> hey, Tim. <laughs> old bastard. God, God love him. All right, well, a lot of my listeners are uh, more race guys, so... I guess we'll uh, we'll get a bit more background on you. I've known you, so we're just talking before we hit the record. I think we met in the late eighties, eighty nine, eighty nine at Pool when you and Simon, Simon uh, Scott Carroll, Scott Carroll, Scott Carroll came and did an invert. You were at Invert, right? Yeah, it was. It was. I think at the time it was before it became Invert. It was the Freestyle BMX magazine trick team. We came and did some. Uh, Halftime demos or something like a lunchtime demo at the, at the race meeting there. But it was a little bit famous because Charlie Reynolds, uh, there was like a big gravel pit at the finish line. That's right. And, and we, we had like this trick, like this kick turn ramp, and we, we moved it over to this big gravel pile. And, and Charlie and a few of us were jumping into it. And uh, Charlie's videos are still doing the rounds from that one. So yeah. Like 30 years later. Well, that's why it's still a bit, you know, at least in the English community, there's like there's still a lot of footage from that from that race and there's you and you got mags on right that's right yeah yeah clive goslin and uh, all the old english racers so all right well let's uh and i think that's that's back when i first struck up my friendship with you and with like with clive i became great friends with clive over the years yeah dylan clayton just the whole community i think it was my first exposure to you and your first exposure to me but you did race right you told me let's get back to it let's go to how, how did you find bmx when did you start okay i was an eight-year-old kid who was obsessed with that tv show the fall guy with Lee Majors I wanted to be a stuntman like many little boys do right. I, had, um, I had a rally striker like a, li- a little street bike I used to ride around the neighbourhood with my friends we used to make jumps want to do tricks and one day I saw that there were bikes actually designed for this for doing jumps on um, so I begged my parents they got me um, a bike called a rally burner which the British people will remember red or blue um, it was the gold one. It was so. It's a super burner. It was the super one. It was like the second one from the bottom of the range. Yeah, so super like burner. Basic, it was the next one up. So it was like ninety five quid, ninety five pounds or something. Right, right. British pounds, not weight. And then, <laughs> although it was about ninety five pounds in weight. And then, um, so I just started riding that round the neighbourhood. You know, just jumping off off grass verges and and like a plank of wood and a few bricks making our own rudimentary ramps then a friend at school told me about um he used to go to racetrack at weekend he said there was there was organized racing now this is in southport in lancashire in the northwest of england where i, where I grew up i was born in liverpool but grew up just to the north in in lancashire which is where my dad was from um and i remember um a kid in my class he told me about the racing so i went that weekend and it was the best thing i'd ever seen in my life what year was that it was 1983 I think. Oh wow! I, I, yeah, I got the bike in 1982, so it would have been the next year, about a year after. So from 1983, um, any time I could like talk my dad or someone into giving me a lift up there, I'd be at the racetrack. Um, did you go to Wigan as well, or just? I did. I went to Wigan for my birth for like my I think it was my 11th birthday. Or so did you meet Dylan and Alan Woods? Everybody over there? I don't know. Not Dylan. They've been too young. I, I'm not sure. Do you know what I did go? Um, my mate's dad took us to a race there 
would it have been UK BMX back then? Yeah, yeah. We went to a race and I met Andy Ruffle and he signed something for me. And I met Jason Lunn, I remember he was doing a rally demo. Yeah, I raced with Jason Lunn, we were in the same age group. And, um, and my big claim to fame from when I was a little kid, when I was about 10, was I jumped the, the wig and whoops. Wigan whoops. Yeah, there was a and sticker it, for that. I remember I see yeah. it on the back of people's cars. Yeah, you got a sticker. I, I never yeah. had the sticker, but I did jump it. And right. it was the scariest thing I'd ever done. In so my you life showed that, that was at the national where you saw Ruffle? I saw Ruffle. I'd have probably been there then. We'd have probably Absolutely. crossed sure paths without even I remember, knowing. I remember back then I used to pay close attention to Jamie's staff. Right. Being the same age as Jamie, if I had ever elevated to that level, yeah. he, he was he was the kid in my class kind of thing who yes. was doing it. He was on rally at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so he was the guy my age who I, I aspired to one day be like. Right. Oh, that's funny. Uh, yeah, because let's say Jason Lunn, yeah, before he went into freestyle, he did a couple couple years of um, couple race, couple years of racing. He rode for Torca, and his brother was really good as well, Nathan. Nathan, I remember Nathan. Yeah. Do you know what? I got Jason Lunn's autograph at that, um, and he said, what's your name? I said, Simon, and he wrote, to Sam. <laughs> no, but uh, uh, Nathan was like Dylan Clayton, like smooth and technical, and yeah, yeah, magazine, yeah. Pictures. And Jason was good as well. But Jason Nathan, was yeah. incredible. Yeah. All right. And uh, so local scene. What? Tell you. You met the Flem Dog during all this, right? Um, no, no, not for years. Right. It was. It was a few years um, before I met. Okay. Here's what happened: was I used to race a little bit, and um, and then they built a, a quarter pipe at the track. Okay. And then Andy Irwin, who who was. He rode for Talker, Talker and then he rode for GT. Um, he's from Southport as well. Right. So he, he was the local freestyle pro and he used to ride this quarter pipe a little bit. So I, I mean, I'm 10 years old at this point or something, maybe getting on for 11. So I start, you know, just trying to learn, ride it a little bit, start learning to do a bit more, a bit more. Um, and, you know, started bogging him and talking to him. And I, I always remember that he was like a little bit mean to me, but I'm friends with him these days. Right. He, he was actually quite cool to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, uh, but he was the first pro that I actually met. What about myself. Andy Preston and Mike Pradden? Because they were from up there as well. They were from Morecambe, just a little bit to the north. And I didn't really... They get weren't to, on your radar. I didn't really get to meet them until later. That I was in awe of them. But they were they were of the era where they were in BMX bi-weekly. Yeah. You know, every issue, every two weeks, I would, I would see them. Yeah. Know, doing flatland tricks with like Max Gators on and goggles and, and, <laughs> yeah. and JT Mouthguard and all of that so that, that was definitely they were my formative years for sure so who else did who, who was was like you're inspired to uh, as well as you know locally anybody like internationally was you not, not even looking well, at that well, yet I think we'd have to move on a little bit yeah I, yeah I, still I, on the English I, scene at the time I'm still trying to I'm racing a little bit and I, I quickly became bored of racing and this was something I talked about with you I remember one day getting in trouble with one of the officials at the racetrack in Southport because he shouted at me because I was showboating in the race <laughs> in one of my motos I did like an X up over the doubles or something Right. I was, I was, I was trying to jump I was trying to go high yeah. and I remember getting a bollocking getting tell, told off by him and at the time I remember it really really hurt me because like it's, I was a mischievous little bugger. I was a 10-year-old boy, whatever. So at home, I'd get in trouble. At school, I'd get in trouble. There was rules. But when I was at the racetrack on a Saturday, I didn't want people telling me what to do. And here I was, breaking the rules again just for doing an X-up over the doubles. And it really kind of made me sad. So I, I ended up going more towards the racing side. And I, I remember the big, the pivotal moment for me was I missed my moto once because I was I just learned to do airs out, the t- to do little aerials out the top of the quarter pipe. And um, I totally missed my moto that day. And I'm not sure that I ever really went back to racing after that. I dabbled here and there, but I never really, like, freestyle was my future thereafter. Did you compete or just kind of ride for a while first well, then, before you started competing? Th- then one of my mates in the local neighborhood, he found out that, um, at the Kirby Sports Center in Liverpool. They had a track there as well, right? track and yeah. a freestyle club yeah. on a Saturday. So we started going to that. And then they started having some local competitions. Then they had a minibus was going to a regional. So I rode at a regional as a novice. 
And then I think this was 1985. So then by 1986, I wrote the full series and ended up turning expert. So I started going through the ranks then. So by, I think I was 12 in 86 and I was like number two in the north in my age group or something. Who like was you competing against? Oh God knows, other 12 year olds. You, you didn't like come across just, Bestwick yet? Just, no, 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 not yet, not yet. Right. But then I think the next year when I was 13, um, I entered the national series and I finished... Um, UK BFA, what was it? What UK was BFA, I think I finished second in the year end. So that qualified me to the English team for the world championships. So I rode the world championships that year when I was 13, 1987. And, um, for vert, is it? Or was it like, like just quarter, quarter pipe? It was, pipes, it was yeah. ramps or flatland. And right. by this time, I'd got a bit bored of flatland. I realised I was a ramp rider, and I yeah. with that. So, I'd, and I think it was the first year where you didn't have to ride both. So I just specialised in ramps. So I'd stopped racing. I stopped flatland. Stopped everything. I was just a pure ramp rider. Now by this time, my heroes were Mike Dominguez and and. Um, Brian Blythe, Ron Wilkerson. So you'd already seen the mag- mean, my, mags on that I'd, I'd seen them in the magazines and all of that. My, my bedroom wall was covered with posters. I think I, I got um, my first good bike. After that first World Championships, I was riding a DP Freestyler that was worth about $64, to be honest. It was six, there was, uh, it was I think the, there was £69 for Frame of Forks. I remember the ads. I remember it still had rally, be- rally burner wheels and it had fake comp three tires on it right but i was ranked number three in the world on this terrible bike and i remember my dad was like do you know what son i think it's time we get you a serious bike you're getting quite serious at this so we got um he got me a haro sport and i remember i had the advert on like the i ripped it out of the magazine i had it on my wall for months and months and months prior to getting the bike with that is a picture of ron wilkerson wearing some ray-ban glasses and a picture of the of the bike so that was 87 was my first good bike first year in the national series first and, and rewinding real quick so Kellogg's BMX beat you missed all that right you're well, too yeah, young yeah I was too I, I saw it all on the telly that we recorded it my, my friend recorded it all on his uh, his VHS and we we used to watch it religiously and then we'd go outside and have our own little Kellogg's contest yeah we right. did that but with racing yeah we'd time each other and go beep time out right five seconds left it right was, uh, happy days you know Oh, we're all doing the same kind of thing but in different yeah, areas yeah. you know I remember one of my, my clearest memories from that friend back in the days, this kid Marcus Humphreys, who he always pointed out to me he was the best rider in Southport. He always <laughs> made that very clear to me. And um, he told me once that we were riding the quarter pipe in his front garden, and, and, and he said, You know what? Do you know how high Bob Hara can bunny hop? He could hop, bunny hop as high as my window ledge. And I remember looking up at his bedroom window, and it was like 14 feet off the floor. Right. And I remember we all looked at it and were like, Whoa. And you know what, the first time I met Bob Harrow in the 90s, I told him that story. I was like, when I was a kid, I believed that you could bunny hop like 12 to 14 feet off the floor. Right, he's laughing. <laughs> that was funny. What about, because um, obviously in the magazines then in England, Neil Ruffle, Carlo Griggs, Craig Campbell, Chris Young, I mean, the list goes on. Um, yeah. You you never really competed with them guys. Them guys kind of faded out as you came in, right? Do you know what, when, of, of that list, Craig and... Craig was still around, and I remember meeting Craig in 87, right. going street riding with him once, and I was really enamoured. I couldn't believe it. I'd met, like, the Craig Campbell. That, that was incredible. I really liked Craig's riding. Yeah. I liked his style. I liked his whole approach. You know, he seemed ahead of the curve. Um, Carlo Griggs was just a phenomenon back in the day. Somebody posted a picture of him just last week. I, think I, just, you... I, I, I just reposted it the other day. It was unbelievable. I've asked you this before, but you, like... He didn't stick around too long. I mean, like, competing at least. I know he rides or, or he rode for a long yeah, time Carl, after. Yeah, Carlo never stopped riding. The thing, thing with Carlo was, back in the 80s, when Matt Hoffman first blew up, Carlo was as good. I actually talked to Matt about Carlo this week. Because um, I said when I did that post, I was like, I'm not sure that anybody anybody could do it better. Like, like my favourite thing in BMX has always been 
the ability to go to watch someone go super high but be super smooth and stylish. Right. I'm not sure anyone could do it better than Carlo. And Matt said that he agreed with me. He's pretty, he's pretty sure. A lot of his old pictures in the magazines is so high. I mean, for that the picture t- I yeah. posted the other day is like a 13 foot air or something from yeah. 1988 when he he was like 15 at the time. Right. He was 14. You know, he just so incredible and he never slowed down. He never stopped. The, the difference was when we got into the half pipe era, he'd been gone for a while and like I, I know he did try and come back in for a little while and it wasn't that easy and I don't think it was that much fun for him and I, right. I, I don't know that he cared that much but um, I don't think anything takes away from his legacy you know I look back at those pictures now mm. and they stand up today oh yeah I, I mean I saw a picture of him doing a no-footed can-can the other day and to this day I'm not sure anyone can do it that well right just unbelievable yeah you know, 30 years down the road and the skill set that he had then still holds true now he does there's such a small handful of people that have come close to that riding ability. Yeah, so what about Bestwick then? How did, when did you guys meet right, up and my, start my your first, uh, rivalry? My, I knew Jamie a little bit in in the late 90s. He was in like the older amateur classes. Um, so I'd see him now and then. I, I didn't really know him and I, I didn't really... We weren't really friends like... It, it was more that his friends maybe knew my... I don't know. We, we, I saw him at the competitions and we weren't re- really friends. And then um, 1990, I remember January 1990, I... At the end, I decided to go pro. And back then in the UK BFA, you had to do a year in masterclass first, and then you were allowed to be pro thereafter. And you had to get like top three in the year-end amateurs to be allowed to turn pro. So the first, you know, the, the, as soon as I could, the second I turned 16 and qualified, I turned pro, like the first opportunity. And I remember my first competition was in Ripley in Derbyshire. Yeah, no, I live there. No, and there. Jamie had yeah. turned Masterclass the same day. From I think he'd come from the 17 plus and I came from the 15 plus. Eight right. Plus. So we met for the first time. And I remember just being faced with this fella, watching him ride, do 12, 13 foot airs in practice. And I was was like, he on oh, a PK God. Ripper that morning? He was on a PK Ripper. Yeah. Just just ripping at this ramp and you know going high like we were talking about Carlo going high yeah and I was just like I have no idea how I'm going to deal with this but um, here we go you know like <laughs> riding against such older skilled yeah. riders and everything because I was still just you know fresh out the 15 year old yeah yeah so that was like my first encounter with Jamie do you guys start to make money then? As we, I guess, because that's where we linked up a little bit more. Wanted in the early nineties, where it seemed like yeah, be- 19- before that, what happened a little bit before we all before it kind of died. You right, know, right, right before it died, like late eighties, I was still an amateur. I was still at high school and everything. Nineteen ninety, um, I left high school. Um, I turned pro. I started getting sponsored. I actually started making a bit of money. Who was your first ride? Shows my first sponsor. Sponsors. Um, I I remember I rode for Bully in 1990. I had like a Converse deal for shoes. Um, I was riding for the Invert. Invert, team. yeah, yeah, and yeah. That, that was more like the guy that owned all of that setup. Right. Kind of like gathered. That was Mark's all, dad, right? Yeah, it was yeah. Peter Noble, Mark yeah. Noble's dad. Yeah. He pulled in all of the sponsors. So we yeah. had all these Because it was a little race team, that's why I was familiar okay, with it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah there was yeah, Conrad yeah. Wesson. Right. And that's right, Conrad I was teammates with yeah. Conrad back yeah. in the day. And um, so I was on like a monthly retainer, kind of like a salary, and then I'd, I'd get like a day rate, and, and it was all going on. And I was still 16 at the time. I was fresh out of high school. I couldn't have been happy. I was on on tour on the road um, all around Europe, like with, you know, competing against lots of my heroes, you know, hanging out with pros. It was it was high times. It, it was... Who was the top guys in Europe, apart from the English? I'm going to say... German guys were good at vert, weren't they? Um, yeah, there were some really good ones. Stefan Prantl, who started We The People. He yeah, was yeah. really, really good. I remember I snuck into a pro contest when I was 15. I went to a... Actually, I maybe met you on that trip. I went to a race in Holland when I was 15 
we it was like a a, a bus trip or something and the freestylers <laughs> came along and we got there and they didn't have an amateur class so I had to enter the pro class right so that was my first time riding against all the and it was at a race European pros it, it was at a race I can't remember in Holland it was. I remember we got an overnight I came on the bus with all the racers Okay, it's like Aaron then, yeah. yeah was, you was on that bus? It was something like that, yeah. It was yeah. an indoor event, I remember. Oh, no, it, was it wasn't like Aaron then. We used to go there so much, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. don't remember. Yeah, yeah I, I remember, yeah, we, yeah. Did we hang out? I don't remember. Oh, shame. That, that was all yet to come. Yeah, yeah, exactly, we were saving it for a few yeah, years' yeah. time. Um, all right, so I guess, yeah, early 90s then, that's where we linked up again. You started coming to... Uh, to the races just to hang out. You were friends with uh, Tony Fleming, the Flem dog, a guy I raced with, and he's still around and still racing. He's still racing. Fifty plus, just won a national last week. So good job, Flem dog, and nice still one, dog. still rad. And uh, one of those guys that could you know race and, and do it all. You know. Um, so I kind of met you through Flem dog. Flem dog started bringing you to the races during the early nineties. So tell us why you came to the races. Okay, and, what happened and, yeah. there was was I you know I turned pro and was suddenly you know on, on the crest of a wave of my own success and everything, and BMX inconveniently died. Mm-hmm. It's just everything disappeared. So, you know, I got a job, just kept riding, you know, just had no real plans or dreams or hopes of ever making any money or anything. You know, it was just was what it was. Um, there wasn't much going on freestyle wise. You know, obviously I'm a, I'm a ramp rider, I'm a vert rider, a half pipe rider, and there just wasn't really much going on at all. Um, and then I bumped into Tony um, and I'd seen, um, I saw an advert in the BMX magazine for the the Grands and EBA race in Couple, okay, and they had a dirt jump competition, and it said um, there's going to be a king of dirt, and Todd Lyons is going to do a demo, is going to judge the contest and do a demo to show everybody how it's done. Right. <laughs> and I was like, you what? <laughs> so, so I saw this. So, um, and then I bumped into. Did Tony. you know who he was at the time? Then, yeah, 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 yeah. of course I knew of the Wild Man. Of course, <laughs> you know? and then I bumped into Tony Fleming. We were at this dirt jump jam in in Liverpool in the Wirral, and I, and I saw him. And I said, like, "Hey, Tony, do you know like, like what goes on at these EBA races? Like, can anyone just show up and ride ride the dirt jump comp?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's fine. You should come along." I was like, "Could I come along with you? Because right. I don't know any of the races really. Like, could I come along with you? Because you know, I saw that they're having this." this event and it was a week or two later so he's like yeah yeah come along so I went along with Tony and then um, I remember riding the jump the day before the jumps or whatever it was a berm jump right right at the bottom yeah, of the yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and I seen Todd Lyons and I recognised him from the magazine so I went over and said hello I was like hi I'm Simon and he knew me from magazines or whatever so you know it was quite nice we, yeah. we said hello became friends we rode a little bit and I said um, oh, I saw that you were going to um, that you were going to judge the contest and then do a demo to show us all how it's done <laughs> he's like and he was all embarrassed he didn't write the advert obviously no, right. I, I shouldn't have put him on the spot I felt bad for the fella and he, he was kind of sheepish about it. He was like, oh, yeah, you know, that, that's just, I guess that's what they want me to do. Right. So now you should enter the competition, Todd. Like, you, you know, you're really good. You should enter. He went, yeah, yeah, maybe I will. So I talked him into, right, the poor bastard. So yeah, I, I talked Todd into entering. And then, but also that's at the same time, the backyard guys started coming as well. There was yeah, Ian, I, Morris I Ian Morris and Stuart Dawkins. That's right. And do you know what? It, it was that time in BMX when everything was so kind of dead. There was, you know... There wasn't much. Give us your uh, your clear out quotes. I like that what you yeah, said. Yeah, no, no. I, I always like looking back. I've always looked at this as a golden time for British BMX and maybe BMX globally. Was at the end of the eighties. You know, we we were at the end of the craze and the boom and everything, where everyone had a BMX and it. You know, it was in ET and it was on the TV and mm-hmm. you know 
it all kind of got a little bit cheesy and a little bit out of control and it was a little bit gimmicky and everything yeah and I think it was very healthy for BMX to die so that we could have a clear out we could get rid of all of the, like the, the silly bright shorts and, and the gimmicky behaviour and Lots of beach <laughs> yeah you know and, and it was fun and it was what it was and mm. it had its time but we got rid of all of that mm-hmm. and we had to build again from the ground up and that's where a lot of like the serious rider owned companies came from mm-hmm. and we became a lot more introspective but it also it got rid of a lot of characters if you stuck it through the dead years it's because mm. you really loved BMX yeah yeah Yeah, and that's where we like say we connected with you guys a lot of the freestyle guys became our friends in England because you guys started coming and I mean I remember going to after meeting you I remember going to Wakefield and meeting up with you and Flem and yeah yeah, the Mansfield wheels of Nottingham kind of like brought us together again you know, yes each other's events and it was yeah. a good little a fun sense of, it was just a laugh at the weekend we were all working day jobs and yeah we still liked riding our bikes and i don't think any of us really had aspirations you know i remember i remember in the mid 90s jamie used to I, I used to ride with bestwick once in a while at wakefield and jamie was still just training like he was training to to be the best in the world yeah and and i always used to look at him i couldn't really be bothered at the time i was just about riding my bike and we'll just go and ride the jumps or whatever or just you know yeah whatever and I used to look at look at Jamie and, and be like, wow, he's just waiting. He's waiting for that call and he's going to be ready when it comes. Yes. I didn't believe it would come, but you never... And he always used to talk to me, like, imagine if we, if we could ride full-time. Imagine if we didn't have full-time jobs. Imagine what we could do. And I'd be like, no, no, I agree with you, but I'm just not sure it's ever going to happen. Well, he, but I'm with you, he you know? held on, even though when he probably could have gone, because he lived near me, so I would see him quite a lot. Mm-hmm. He would actually, his work was Codner, which he would ride past my house okay. on the on the way to work. And uh, I was already racing full time then. So sometimes he would drop in on a Friday to my house and he'll, he'll, he'll remember this. If he listens to this, I told him in Paris, uh, vans, half cabs. He always told me I, I extra charged him for him, but I was I was already on GT then, and I'd always say, "Why aren't you in America, dude? You need to right. you need to go out there." It's like, oh, I like working but, and blah but blah also, blah. Do you, do you understand at the time, Dale? We didn't Jamie and I. We didn't really have the money for an airfare. To right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, like you were right, and we kind of knew it. Yeah. But it was all or not. I know that when we both first came, it was all or nothing. Right. We had to like then like 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 beg, borrow sell some stuff yeah. to get the money together and then it was you know like like a, a one-off chance it was yes. one-off thing to try and because we had to come and qualify for the X Games and everything what was the first year you did the X Games then? 98 I had to come and ride a qualifier first who was you riding for then? I was riding for a British company called Animal do you remember them? yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Steve, Steve Kitchen Steve right? Kitchen. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. they're yeah. still around I think right? yeah I think yeah. so yeah no I remember I met Steve Kitchen and we did, I, I can't remember how it came about but we talked a little bit and they good friends with Clive maybe yeah yeah, yeah. It, it was all through those connections I think it was through my race connections a little bit. Um, and then I remember um, I told them, you know, because we were doing some other stuff, and I said, it'd be really great, like, could you maybe help me go and ride an X Games? Um, and they were kind of interested, but they weren't sure. So I talked to Matt Hoffman, and Matt did me a big favour. He wrote a letter to them asking them if they would send me to the qualifier. That was it. I had to write a qualifier to get in. And and he he wrote some elaborate story about how like it would be cool if I'd come out and I could, you know he was on Hoffman whatever. then at the time then right um, no I wasn't like, I wrote for Hoffman a few years before so that. let's go back a bit then okay. so early nineties we just met we saw you for a couple of years uh-huh. you come and hung out with us we went out and had some fun as well and drunk and that's when like I say when BMX was kind of dead but we would go to the races but we'd go drinking and have fun we went and to uh, yeah. Billy Clayton's karaoke Billy's karaoke cal- yeah. a lot I'll of this on remember, video I'll always remember you and I. Um, 
Paul Roberts was singing I Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog by Elvis and, and, and the karaoke guy closed the karaoke down and threatened to take it away because we were throwing things at Paul and one of us one of us either you or me um, clocks Paul on the head with a can of beer wasn't me must have been you it's probably me yeah. from the back of the room whilst he was singing I Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog and the guy was like alright that's it I'm closing down the karaoke and then another uh can you remember coming to it was a World Cup in Brighton I in ninety five? It was clearly. I was on GT. It uh-huh. was sponsored by GT. I rode for GT at the time. Okay, because well. you guys came to John Taylor and everyone was we GT brought, as well. I, demo. I drove, I drove the GT rig with the ramps and everything. Okay, and we did a demo. Well, can you remember that night after the race? There was a big beer tent. I and, do remember that. And we all you that I'm sure you in kind of started it. We all ended up on the roof of the beer tent, and the beer tent collapsed. Collapse, yeah. And I thought I was going to lose. My sponsorship the next day. Yeah, I, I remember there was a lot of mayhem. You know, my clearest right. memory of that night was Rob Indry right. coming out, and the, there was some like very formal presentation. Someone had a microphone right. saying nice things. You know, we thank we thank all the officials and everything like that. And Rob Indry kind of ruined it by coming out wearing a pair of whitey white fronts. It just wandered out, and everyone starts laughing and all of that. And uh, I used to be prone to the odd cigarette back then. You know, yeah, for a while after that as well. Yeah, and, that. and I remember I pulled I pulled the back of his pants open and <laughs> dropped the ciggy down his pants. <laughs> and you've never seen injury move so fast in his life. Good. I remember you was on GT then. So you went from GT, then you went to Hoffman then, right? No, I was on Hoffman before. That was I came out in 92 to Arizona to ride one of his BS comps back in the day. And it was just when he'd started Hoffman Bikes. And, um, and he gave me a t-shirt and some stuff and I went back to England. And then I, I called him and was like, Do you know what? I'd love to ride for Hoffman. He's like, that'd be cool. And he sent me... So I was full factory Hoffman back in the day, which meant um, a frame, forks, a seat post, handlebars, and two T-shirts. That's a factory. That's a sweet deal. Early 90s factory deal yeah. on racing as well. That is, at least uh, well, if you're yeah. English. That's a happy memory in my history, though, riding, riding for Hoffman at the beginning. All right, so then moving back to where we was then, X Games. So you got into your first X Games. So then, yeah, 98. So um, uh, Matt Hoffman sent this elaborate letter. He wrote this letter to Steve Kitchen at Animal, and they were so taken with it. They couldn't believe, firstly, that I knew Matt Hoffman or that Matt Hoffman would write them a letter about me. They're like, of course we'll send you. Right. So they flew me out to the X Games. And like I said, this was my all or nothing. I knew um, I'd kind of given up working the full-time job the summer before. I'd been going to all the big European competitions. I'd kind of... I, I was doing good. I was winning all the... All, all the European stuff, um, and it was time to you know to give a go, you know, go and compete in America, see if I could go anywhere, see if I could make anything happen, or it was time to get a job if it wouldn't work out. So it was definitely like a last chance saloon for me. Yeah, where I was mid twenties, you know, it was getting on in my lifetime to grow up, and um, so I came out to San Diego for that first X Games, and I think this is the biggest pivotal thing in my BMX life. I got third, I got the bronze medal at that one. Who was first and second? It was Dave Mira first. Um, Dennis McCoy was second then I got third Jay Miron was fourth um, and Jamie Beswick wow that's a big five isn't it it was was no joke that lineup. and I remember I got back to England I was like I can't believe it I mean I beat Jay Miron for God's sake right I couldn't couldn't believe it for yeah Canadian beast Um, and then following that I remember I'm I got introduced to Byron Friday, who was the Trek team yes, manager. Yes, yes, our good friend Byron. Talked to him over the winter. Um, he put me on Trek, so I got a two-year deal with Trek, and I was off to the races. They so you was on Trek, and we just did a podcast with Matt Hayden, who rode for Gary Fisher and Trek, obviously, okay. during that good money time, yeah, yeah. where they came in, and they went around... How long did you ride for Trek? A couple of years? Two probably. years. Yeah, then they was in and out pretty quick, uh-huh. but... Obviously, financially, that was probably a good deal, right? Well, here's the biggest thing for me. Financially, it wasn't great, but 
they had gave me a travel budget and they brought me out to all of the the major American contests for those two. So years. you just go back and forth, didn't you? So, so I still lived in England, right? I had a house and all of that, I, you know, whatever. Um, I I so I'd, I'd be in America once a month, rode all of the BS series, rode the X Games. I, I got medals at the X Games again in in the years that followed. And by the end of those two years with Trek, I kind of arrived and, and it was happening for me. I was you know a, a top five kind of a guy. Yeah. And so I always think for Byron, like I, I'm always eternally grateful to Byron having that faith in some weird English kid from across the pond you know yeah um, he put his money where his mouth was well that was probably a big travel budget like say you're going back and forth from exactly. England for all exactly. that stuff that's a lot of money just for that yeah, alone yeah. isn't it and um, I'm not sure that was ideal for them but they were supportive of me doing it you know well you're they, guaranteed always in the top few weren't you pretty well, much well and, and you know think about it it was on ESPN all the time right you know it was very cheap television advertising if you want to look at it that way yeah you know um, but that was so, so that was a big deal for me after that first X Games then the two years with Trek that kind of established I got a foothold over here you um, never wanted to live here back then then or well it, it was it was I kind of did and I didn't I loved coming here and I kind of did but I didn't think it was going to happen my my ex who I lived with back then she was she was a nag <laughs> and, it, and it was clear <laughs> most she, exes are she was never going to and, and you know she was never going to move over here and we you know we bought a house and we had a couple of cats and we were kind of rooted and our life was there and it was you was in Cornwall right no I was in Bristol at the time oh I thought you were Cornwall and I moved to Cornwall like 2002 oh, okay. which is where she was from um, and then I really it just didn't really see, it seemed like a lot of upheaval and a lot of hassle and then I remember we bought a bigger house in England and our life just seemed to expand in England and it was easy I was in Europe one weekend I was in America the next weekend and I, I kind of convinced myself that I had the best of both worlds it was all happening I wasn't sure where I'd want to live you know I'd, I'd, I'd established my life there I wasn't sure how, how long this was going to go on um, and it just didn't really happen immediately but I remember Jamie moved over and he moved to Pennsylvania right and I, I remember thinking well that, that was a big commitment and so he was early 2000s late 90s I think he moved yeah I, I remember uh, I remember when we raced BMX there. It was, like, it was it 2001. Was like the, I he think was it there. was the winter of 99 to 2000. Okay, yeah. He, 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 moved, he sold up in Derbyshire and moved out to America. Right. Um, he moved to to rural Pennsylvania. And he still is there, right? He still lives there, and I always thought that was kind of amazing that he moved out to live next to Woodward Camping. Yeah, of, yeah. Of the farmland kind of thing, and I, I was I wasn't sure that I was ever going to do that. And right. I think he was the first one that did that, that moved out to Woodward and made that commitment. And everybody saw what it did for him, so other people kind of gravitated there after him. Yeah. But I, I always had the utmost respect for that move, because to me it was almost like... Um, BMX 24-7, I'm sure, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it was sacrificing half of your life yeah. for the other half of your life. And I always had the utmost respect for him, and you know, and I think a lot has come from... you know, he, He's made the very, very best of it by making that commitment. I always thought, said it, it was like being a, a committed monk and going to live at the monastery right. it was all in you it know, was rocky and, training and, and, and yeah. it was paid off and I, I could never kid myself that I was going to do that even I remember the first time I went to Woodward by the end of five days I was ready to leave you know Yeah. and for all that's good about Woodward I wasn't sure that I wanted to be living my life at a training camp and everything that goes with it you know just living in that bubble out there I wasn't sure that that was for me yeah I see the benefits and everything but that was never the path I was going to choose yeah no I understand um so x games uh next couple years I mean right up to current I mean you've always been in the top three right yeah so what's your best x games then 
Um, everybody always always makes the notable fact that apparently I've never won the X Games. <laughs> I have. I've got like the mo- uh, the records for like the most silver medals. And Jamie's got ten first or something. Jamie's probably got like thirty gold medals. Oh I, I don't know what he's got. He, yeah, he, he's got an awful awful lot. What do uh, they pay for a win? Like fifty grand or something? Well, it's varied. It's gone up and down. It's, over it's, years. Down, it's been yeah. as high as fifty, and it's been as low as um, I think my first year it was ten. Right. Before, in ninety eight. So you know, so so it's gone up, it's gone down, it's gone up again. It varies. You never know. Um, but um, I've won a bunch of the like the international ones. I've won one in Dubai. I won one in Brazil. I won one in Mexico. Because they used to have like Asian they used to have more, that, didn't all they? over the world. I remember like, reading like, about like, all that. I've won a lot of the international ones, but I've never won like one of the US ones. And it, it, it's funny. It's almost like I've heard it said to me so much that I've almost started to take that seriously and think I should try and win. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Where is him the X Games this year? I don't even. The X Games this year is in Minneapolis. Oh wow! Okay, uh-huh. it was in So it's still a pretty big deal then for you guys. I guess, I, it's still it's it's like the only big vert event anymore. Why, so why is it no more like why is it? Uh, I know it vert's like not I, easy access, but do, do you know what? I, I've, I've no idea. They used to have the Dew Tour, and the Dew Tour itself has just diminished and diminished until it was like one stop a year. Yeah, and then they just seem to have like Skate Street now. I'm, I'm not really sure. I might be misquoting it, misspeaking, but. Um, I, I don't know I just think that with the transformation of the me- like the media revolution in recent years where stuff's gone from t- traditional TV more to streaming mm-hmm. you know we've seen the death of print magazines and everything nobody knows where to put their marketing dollars anymore right you know and since the financial crisis of whenever that was 2008 2009 mm-hmm. it never really came back hard after that you know so our events like for BMX Vert specifically on an annual basis have just got less and less and less and less and then to be objective and put the shoe on the other foot from the outside looking in you can kind of see why it's still the same few characters I mean I'll give you an idea the three years last year it was in uh, Minneapolis but the three years before that it was in Austin, Texas so of those three years two of the years the podium was exclusively people in their 40s it was me Jamie Beswick and Dennis McCoy wow and then, like, the, I remember the last year in Austin, at the end of the contest, they were about doing the podium. And I remember joking, like, like yelling, like, could everyone in their 40s please report to the podium? <laughs> yeah. And I don't think it was a good thing for BMX Vert. It's kind of a damning indictment. Right. And it's not that there weren't the most ridiculously talented early 20-somethings there. It's just they got beaten by the dudes in their 40s. Right. You know? Um, there's, there's a guy, Vince Byron, in his early 20s. That There's some prolifically talented guys, but there's still guys in the 40s. I mean... Do you think you could ever beat Jamie Bassett? I don't think you could. You know, I'm not sure there's many people on earth that are ever going to beat that guy. Right. He's the most prolifically hardworking, talented... He still really wants it then, does he? He's still, you know, he, he, he's so good at what he, he can't... Okay, he's a lot like Dave Mirror. They're very different people, but like any great champion, it's just, it, it's been in the stars with these guys since they were probably eight years old. There's something in them that just drives them to go on and on and yeah, on and on. Yeah. They don't want to get second and third and fourth. I've always been happy. I've always said any podium is a win. Yeah, you're like you me. Know? I was like I that. Get yeah, place, yeah. I'm like, hey, it could be worse. Yes. You know what? I've got fourth and that's a bummer. Yeah. I've got seventh and that's a bummer. Yeah. So you get third, you're like, hey... You know yeah, no, I've always had the it's same mentality. You can win a couple here and there, thirds and, thirds and fourths, and even beat racing fourths. Honestly, the, the, this typifies it for me. I remember the, I think it was the 2002 Gravity Games. I don't know if you remember that. It was like a big rival for the X Games. It was. I remember the Gravity it, it, Games. It, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Back, back in the early 2000s, the Gravity Games. 
Um, one year, I really went toe-to-toe with Dave Mirror. Like, he rode really, really good, and I rode really, really good, and I ended up beating him by... He had, like, a 93... Oh, so you won the Gravity Games? He, yeah, he had, like, a 93.4 or something, and I had a 94. I beat him by a hair's whisker. Oh, wow. And I remember I went up to him afterwards, you know, to shake hands. Right. Hey, you know, good one, you know, whatever, like, congrats and all of that. And I remember he wouldn't even look me in the eye. He's like, man, I blew it. And we, oh, we were wow. being followed by the TV camera, so I've seen it again on TV. It wasn't just my memory, okay? But I remember he wouldn't look me in the eye. He was dismissive, and he shook his head, and he just all he could say was, "I blew it, man, I blew it," and he walked off, kind of in, in a sulk. And I remember thinking to myself, like that really struck me because I'd always really, really liked Dave until that point. But that was what made Dave so great. But I never wanted to be that. Right. Do you understand that slight difference? Yes, of course. I would have been yeah. like, hey, you know, hard luck, like better look next time. Or, or yes. he, every dog has his day, and Dave should have looked me in the eye. Yeah, and nice it's your turn. Yeah, well yeah. Done, mate. But, and I just remember, like, I really analyzed that. For, for years following that like what made him behave that way and I, I stopped taking it personally I understood that that's what made him great you yeah. know? and it was that drive and I know Jamie has that incessant drive like I'm sure like all great champions do mm. and I identified in myself I don't think I have that mm. you know, I, I remember like to zoom out from there I remember 2006 going on this ridiculous winning streak and I was like I think I was at the ninth event of the year and I had won all of them and I was starting to feel like stupid and embarrassed and was almost like self-sabotaging I was like well I wonder what if I just did this I wonder I couldn't win ever and I would still win right and it was the weirdest thing and I remember the way everyone started treating me change the way people would look at me whisper about me when I showed up at the event and I kind of got bored with it and I was kind of happy when it was over and I realized I was never supposed to be the great champion right I didn't have that that um Whatever that killer factor is, the killer instinct, yeah. the ruthless gene, the, the you know the the special thing that makes that champion that right. drive. I, you know, at the beginning, I just wanted to get to ride my bike and meet my heroes and get to travel a bit and go to some cool places that I'd seen in the magazines, all of that. Mm. You know, and I've been privileged and I've been very very lucky. Mm-hmm. But as far I never felt like I'm the best and I'm going to show the world who you know I'm the. I never. I'm not sure I I ever really wanted that now I did like winning don't right. get me wrong don't misunderstand me you know I've, I've won plenty and I've enjoyed it but it's not the single most important thing to well that's me. why you've had longevity as well you well know? I think I you learned that mix of fun into it you know have a bit of humility and a like I say you say I, I remember watching you know when 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 I was living here and you was I, I there was many years I didn't see you but I would I watch the X Games and see you guys on TV a lot more when it was on a lot but a few times I remember seeing you on the ramp having a ciggy yeah, I, I, I've heard that, that. Like, there's been the old TV. I've literally seen you on TV having a ciggy on the ramp. Yeah, yeah. well, maybe under the ramp. I never used to do that on the ramp. I don't think. I th- might pretty be sure I've seen shot under the ramp and me like a bit of smoke coming out. From right, the banners. Right, but no, that, that's that's the old days. Just just for the, I quit in two thousand and. Jan- okay, December thirty first, two thousand and nine. I quit. Oh wow! So coming on for ten years. Yeah, clean good on. Now. now you was known for the uh, nine hundred, right? I was. Yeah. Do you still do them on? Do you know what? I um, a few years back, I decided. I, re- I remember there was. Um, I think it was two thousand and fourteen. I was at a do tour on the east coast, and I remember I was right there with Jamie with like for a couple of years. I really felt like I, I did kind of have that killer instinct back. Like I was really, really trying to win mm. the big events. I, I felt like I was riding the best of my life, and. I hated the idea that having been the 900 guy or whatever for so long, I didn't think anyone frankly cared to see me just spin one about six feet and land a little bit heavy and ride away. That was boring. It was old hat. I'd got to the point where what I expected of myself was to be able to, in a competition run, to be like 10 feet out doing a trick, 900 the next wall, 
then go the same height. Now, I'm not sure if you really realize on a half pipe, the hardest thing is landing smooth and keeping your height and everything. Right. And the bar, the way, like where I set the bar for myself was I was expecting myself to just be able to reel out a 900 like it was nothing and to continue as though nothing had happened. And to, and that was the only way I really wanted to be able, able to do them, to kind of nosedive them smoothly back into the ramp. You know, like the most perfect 360 you'd ever done. Now, honestly, um, given the nature of the trick, I think it was always an unreal like an unrealistic expectation. Mm-hmm. And I remember the last one I did, I broke both hands trying so hard to do that. I oh, crashed Jesus. so hard. And I remember Brian Foster laughing at me afterwards. He was just like, Simon, what the hell were you thinking? Right. And I was like, and I explained everything I've just said about right. like, oh, No, I took off and I did it a bit differently because I was expecting to nosedive it in and keep my speed. And I stopped paying attention to the most ridiculously dangerous thing I could do. Right. And, got, and I was like, why do I even still do them anymore? Was other people doing them or just you? Like here and there, you'd see one occasionally. Dennis, so we, Dennis we, McCoy would do one in, once in a while, you know. And, so and, you were the first guy to do it? No, 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 no. no the first, okay, the, the history of the trick is Mike Dominguez in the late 80s was the first guy that went past 540. He did a few. He spun to 900. There was rumor that he'd pulled them, but no one actually saw it. But everyone had seen him land very convincingly, roll a little bit and slide off. Then mm-hmm. Matt was, Then a few people tried them thereafter. There was a race to see who would be the first. And Matt Hoffman ended up being the first person to ride away from one to pull one. So historically, it was Matt was the first. Um, I didn't. That was eighty nine. I did my first one in ninety one, um, but it was always famously it was the most difficult trick to harness, and no one could really get them dialed. Like mm. Jamie on a mat had them kind of dialed for a little while, but everyone used to get smashed up doing them, break the bones, break their faces. How did you even learn to face. do that then? Covered in no foam pits well, and all that um, stuff. Well, Resi. Con- well, I could do seven twenties in the eighties. I mean. Con- Contrary to racing history about the beginnings of the 720, I could do it back then. So to me... Was it Matt Hoffman and Charlie Reynolds, right? They, they, somewhere therein lies the truth. Um, I, like, if the logic on a vert ramp is if you can 360 cleanly, then that's basically the spin you do for a 540 in a vert context. And the same thing with a 720 and therefore a 900. So doing the spin was never that difficult. It was learning to land it smoothly enough on the ramp and keep, keep yourself tidy within the yeah. rotation, you know, to land smooth enough to ride away. And that took me years and a lot of stitches and broken bones and concussions and stuff to figure that out. And then I got into a really good scene with them for years. Um, so it was always my thing. I was known as the guy that could just reel them out, you know? Yeah. And it was kind of like, like it opened a lot of doors for me. It was my calling card kind of thing. It was like kind of um, Stephen with a double, double yeah, backflip, like, right? it's like when yeah. Stephen learned double flips. Yeah, it yeah. changed everything. It changed his... It, yeah. it took an already very good rider and elevated him to the next level. I think that's what happened with me with the nines. It really yeah. it, it helped a lot. But then I really felt like the rest of my riding caught up and I was still beating myself up doing this stupid trick. I remember that year... I'd had to have plastic surgery on my nose. I'd, I'd had like 18 stitches between oh, my Jesus, eyes. Yeah. Um, a few year, two years before that, I'd had stitches in my chin doing them. Um, I was at like 20 plus broken bones from that one stupid Fair credit, bone. you're still doing it. And I was like, why am I even still doing this? And I remember I was like, do you know what? I'm not going to do it. I was, and I realized it was my own insecurity. It was people's expectations and yeah. daring to not do it. But I knew that everything changed the second I had to get into that mental mind, mindset to do it. I'd tense up and everything else would be compromised. And I remember talking to Matt Hoffman about this and he said, you know what? In all, all the things I've done on a bike, the 900 is the only trick where every time you do it, it's like it's your first time. Right. You never get it dialed. You never learn to control it. It's the wildest thing ever. And just you, You'll do 20 in a row that are perfect and then you'll get knocked out for three minutes and break your leg and you won't know why. 
you never know till you've taken yeah, off what's going to happen. all you guys. So, so it was always yeah. like such a gamble, that trick. And I was like, do you know what? I'm not going to do them anymore. And Matt was the first person. I remember telling Matt, I was like, do you know what, Matt? I have retired from 900. <laughs> and Matt's not one to back down stuff. And I remember he, he was thoughtful. He looked away for a second. And then I remember he looked at me and looked right in the eyes and he went, good. Like, it's time. Like, no, no, that's a good, that's a good choice. Right. You've done, no, that's a good choice. Right. And I was like, oh, wow. I, got you. I didn't expect But he still goes that. big, right? I Matt. see some videos and stuff. Yeah, Matt, Matt can't control himself. <laughs> Matt just really, Matt just really, really lives to ride his bike, you know. Right. And, and I don't want to start applying cliches. Just I was watching a little video where him and Dennis McCoy crashed and stuff yeah, yeah, a couple think, years ago. Think of all the things that Matt's done in his life. He can't go to the ramp and go, oh, I'm just going to go mellow today. Right. He has such expectations. And I understand this on a daily basis. I never want to have a day that was worse than the day before. Yeah. Once you start doing that to yourself, you're screwed. You know. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I've cursed myself forever. How does a very guy even? You know, is the word training? How do you practice in today's world? Then you okay. know, so X Games is coming up this year. What would you do? Okay, here's. I mean, I can, I can already tell you war for war what I'm going to do at X Games. Right, yeah, I, I, I already absolutely know, like, like my game plan, because here's to answer your first question. Here's how I do it. And here's how I've done it in recent years. Every day that I go to the ramp, every day that I choose to ride my, my bike on a vert ramp, I get to the ramp. I'll normally do like a 12 for air in my first run of the day. Really? Go big straight I away? I start where I mean to go on, okay? Oh, wow. I scare myself into taking it seriously. And within three runs, my mind is so silent and serene and quiet that I hear nothing. It's tranquility. And I'm just in the ramp riding. I believe in myself so much and I trust myself to make the right decisions. The second I'm like, oh, I'm going to go slow and warm up a little bit, it doesn't work. Really? So, so see, his, I his, thought that was what the... works for me these days. Now, I never used to do it. I always used to do it the other way. I've always right. worked up and everything. These days, I just go to the ramp and I drop in like I mean it. I pick up where I left off on the day before. Wow. And then, and then I always try and leave with momentum on my side. Like, I quit whilst I'm ahead and I go away and then I try and come back. How long would you be at a ramp for then, just various? I mean... Honestly, I, I have this little rule for myself. Some days I'll go and just get my 10 runs done. Oh, really? Okay. Within 10 runs, dropping in 10 times, I can get everything done I want to get done in a day and then leave. Um, but also, that 10 tends to become 13 or 15 or something like that runs. And then maybe like... And then lately I've just been a, a bit easier on myself. I'll stay a little bit longer and I'll just ride hanging out with my friends. Yeah, that's what I was so going to say. So Do you guys I, like go and hit the rest of the skate park like, or anything and like, like, play around? I don't really ride much other stuff these days. I always used to pride myself on riding everything. But where I live in North County, San Diego, is the epicenter of the greatest vert ride ramps on earth. Yeah, I was seeing the videos. And yeah, I live yeah. in the community with... with the vert skateboard community basically yeah so and all these ramps are ride are private ramps basically so any which way out of my house i can go to like the one of the best ramps on earth so for me i always ask myself well why would i go and ride a four foot deep bowl with this when i leave the house whereas with the same amount of effort and energy i can go and ride one of these best ramps that i've dreamt of my whole life you know from being yeah. a 10 year old kid looking at magazines now i'm here at the epicenter with all of these people you know um, so honestly, I pretty much just ride vert for the most part. Occasionally, I feel like going and riding the skate park or going mess about a little bit. But the, the problem with small stuff, it's almost like I don't take it that seriously, and it catches you out a little bit, and I end up crashing and hurting myself anyway. So I'm like, well, maybe I'll just go and ride the 14 foot tall ramp. So when you <laughs> when you retire from competition, whenever that is, uh -huh. what what kind of um, I, I would think you'd still carry on riding. Yeah. What what kind of riding would you do? Well. My retirement plan, I've always told you still myself, ride is to have some little jumps at my house. Yeah, you were trying to do that last year, weren't you? Yeah, but I'm, I'm still working on them. I've got like a little pump track at my house. My kids are three and a half and they've got little balance bikes. and Yeah. You know, so, so it's for them, but I can roll around it a little bit myself. 
but that's my end game is just to have some jumps but I'm not sure I still I still go I mean if I, if I live where I live I'll still go ride those ramps okay that's yeah and I won't go under 10 feet out the top of those ramps and then if I'm going over 10 feet I'll still spin a 540 so you're still so kind of pushing until push something then. actually stops me right because none of that's really I hate to say it, not to be conceited but none of that's really an effort to me anymore that's just what I can do and I can keep my skill set there mm. without too much trouble and then you've got people like Dennis McCoy that's a lot older than well, still Dennis really good is, right I think Dennis just turned 51 and he can still do all of that so know? that inspires so you guys I, I, then, yeah. Dennis has always been my benchmark I've always said to myself whilst Dennis is still happy and still progressing and is still good yeah. then I have 7 years in me Yeah, you know I'm 7 years younger so you know and Jamie's a couple of years older I think he's 3 years older than me same as me and he's prolific yeah. he's crazy you know so I the, the, the other side to the coin for that is, is for me is as far as being out there and being sponsored and being professional and competing I do feel I, I have to feel as if we're having a detri- detrimental effect on Vert itself and the best thing that could happen for the future of Vert is for us to go away and clear out to be done and to be gone so the thing can refresh itself and let the, you know, how, how can Vert grow then? Because obviously it's a small kind of I'm niche, not, right? I'm not sure. I, I've always, you know, I, I've been asked this question a thousand times, and I've never really come up with a good, a good answer. Is it just hard access? It's to, just, yeah. Well, it's not even about the access. It's just it's, Dale. It's really scary. Right. It's really dangerous. At any point, you know, you know, think about it. At any given time when I'm riding the ramp, I'm 30 feet or so in the air. Yeah. Okay. Landing within tolerances of less than an inch. Now, if I like a few years back. I was I was just riding at my friend's house, just the same as every other day, doing the exact same things as I do every day. And I clipped back wheel coming in from a 540, about 10 feet out of this ramp, 14 foot tall ramp. Um, I broke one hand in four places. Oh, Jesus. Um, I broke three ribs. Um, I'd already had a broken collarbone, so I had a plate and eight screws on that. I rebroke that, shattered it again. I collapsed and punctured my lung. I was unconscious for three minutes. I ended up spending a week in... Um, in the um, in hospital in the ICU, um, I had a breathing tube put in to reinflate my lung. I was on a breathing machine for six days. Um, I had, then I had to have a surgery to reconstruct my collarbone, have a new plate screws put in. I had another surgery on my hands to put a plate, and um, I think I had six screws in my hand. And that was hey, just another day at the races, you know. And you've still like never debated like, why am I doing this? I need to. Well, that was the one I think everybody would have forgiven me for walking away. Right. Um, but I always, I always pride myself on the fact that six weeks to the day from that crash, I did the same trick on the same spot on the same ramp that I'd crashed on. Okay. And then eight weeks after that, I competed in China. And then um, I remember my surgeon told me after the collarbone that the severity of the break and the surgery, it was so close to my spine that he didn't want any rehab for three months. Um, not even begin rehabbing until the three month mark. And then we would rehab and then we would talk about getting back on the bike after that. And I remember the Monday after the X games that year was the three month mark when he told me I was supposed to start rehab and I got a bronze medal at the X games. that wow. year. And to me, it was the biggest like mind over matter thing it was like determination and hard work very mentally strong then I mean I'm sure all you guys have really really got huge mentals right well but you don't know it until you're in a situation right it wasn't like I could have said before yeah that's what I would do and I would fight I I had no idea but I was I was so I was so low after that crash yeah I was in so much pain for the first first four weeks I was so drugged out of my mind on painkillers you know it, it was my lowest ebb ever as a BMX rider and it was for me, it was um, I was staring the death of my bike riding 
in the eye. Yeah. You know, and it, I realized it was the most precious thing and I would do anything. I would fight and do anything to get it back. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so honestly, I remember, um, for, I went to meet one of my friends at the ramp just, just to hang out. Um, it was, I remember it was 10 days after my collarbone surgery and five days after the hand surgery. So I, I still had a cast on my hand. Um, for some reason I decided because I, I wasn't sure what the answer was I wasn't sure I was going to quit so I decided to take my bike and my helmet with me to the ramp and then when I got there I was like well let's just see shall we let's just find out and I could only hold on like I could touch my finger and my thumb to hold on with the cast on my hand and I tried to ride the ramp and I pet the collarbone was so excruciatingly painful like all the fresh surgery and the oh, stitches yeah. and everything I got to like the top of the ramp and just had to slow down I couldn't do it so I got off the ramp and I was all deflated and I was like, no, no, come on, there has to be a different way. So I tried again, got back on the ramp, and this time I used my hips more to like to kind of generate momentum and get up to speed, and I managed to get onto the top of the ramp. And then I dropped in, started doing some airs, and I ended up going about head height that day. Um, and I was like, okay, that's all I need to know. And I remember all my skateboarder friends were all there, and they're like, what the hell are you doing, Simon? And I was like, please, please, just bear with me. I have to find out if I want to come back. And that, I realized that day that nothing, I wanted nothing in my life more than to be back on my bike. So then I went away and got on my, my fitness regime and changed my diet and had my physio come into the house every day. Yeah, you've never been one for... And I just oh, at least when I knew you, you was never one for, like, say, you like to see you and no, you're I've drinking. Ne- I've never uh, been healthy and I've never trained. I've ridden a bike. Like, honestly, for Have me, you ever been to the gym in your life? I know. I, I, no, not really. I think I was at a hotel once. <laughs> you're pretty good to so say you never done anything. Well, no, I, I went to a gym once with a friend at a hotel, and it was like, I'll never get those 25 minutes back. I'm right. I have the utmost respect for people with the discipline to do it. Right. The only thing I ever did that really helped me was I used to go and try and swim every day. Right. Like, at one point, I had we had a swimming pool, and I'd try and get in the pool every day. Yeah. And do, like, 30 lengths or something. But that's the closest I ever came to any kind of fitness. Yeah. I like, honestly, I would just go and ride my bike at the ramp, and that was the best training. Yeah, just yeah. Being on my bike. Oh, fair play. Um, so, what's the future of Vert, you think? The or future is, of Vert, oh. like everything else in BMX, it, 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 will, it will reimagine itself, it will return. You know, everything that we do is being done elsewhere in BMX on smaller ramps. It's just, the problem with Vert is you can't. Like, you can't ride it with your interpretation. Like, street, you can say, well, I'm a rail guy, or I'm a this kind of a guy, or mm. I'm this style, or I'm, like, the long hair, heavy metal guy. With Vert, you either, it makes a fool out of all of us. You either look good and can do it, or you can't. So, therefore, it's not... It's kind of... There's an amount of humility that's going to be required to, like, pay your dues and really, you know, learn that skill set and gather it. And once you do, you know, you'll really, really enjoy it. But then you'll see someone like Beswick ride and be like, oh, God, it's going to take me another 15 years. Yeah. And it's demoralizing. I get it, and I Is there understand. any Simon Tabron, Jamie Beswick's, you know, Jay Myron's? Yeah, any, do you guys see any young kids coming up that could... I don't know about young kids, but there's, there's guys in their 20s, and there's definitely people... Like park riders and stuff who could who could switch could cross over, over if they, if wanted, they to. wanted to. Right, but, you know, give them a year and they would suddenly be really really good and they'd be better than many of the vert riders now. But they would have to want to do that. They would have to be a good. Reason. And they enjoy doing what they're probably and, they're doing. And, that, yeah, and, you know, they're they're really happy doing what they do and they're really good at what they do. Why would they come over and take the risk and have to put the full face? Because you do need a full face helmet. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things. Why would they take all of that on? You know, you talk to the best guys in the other disciplines in freestyle, and they'll probably be the first to tell you how terrifying and prohibit prohibitive vert appears to be you know? yeah yeah I, mean, I remember standing on top of like I remember being on top of a vert ramp one time with Harry Mayne you know, you know who Harry yeah, Mayne is yeah right? yeah like the most amazing rider 
and doing like I don't know just did like a 10 foot tabletop and then like a, a big 540 and I popped out on top of the ramp and he went oh my god you're crazy <laughs> and this is like one of the most capable bike riders in the history of BMX you know just he's Liverpool guy as well right he's Liverpool yeah, yeah, yeah. stood on top of the ramp kind of like tiptoeing to the edge and looking over and it just made no sense to him you know uh, Chris Kyle another amazing guy he, he came hung out earlier this year he came to Tony Hawk's ramp and watched us ride for a little bit and he said to me he's like just as everything he does makes no sense to me he said to me you know what what you do I just don't get it it makes no sense to me it's crazy it's just different you know maybe like it's the difference between if you're a really good pump track rider mm-hmm. and then showing up at a supercross super track Mm-hmm. That there needs to be steps in between. Actually, Harry Main did say to me once, I mentioned this to you, he asked me once, he said, Simon, did you, did you learn to ride on a 14-foot-tall ramp? And I said, no, of course I didn't. He said, well, why should I? Like, how can you expect that of yeah, my generation? True, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's a very, very good point. So maybe, you know, the ramps, the ramps are big for a reason. Believe it or not, they're a lot safer the bigger they are, huh. you know. But they need to get smaller to let everybody evolve I'm not sure I, I, you know, I, I, we can talk all day about it yeah. I don't know what the like answer about is BMX racing, because yeah. for everything I say there's one every generation that comes through and learns how to do it like Coco Zurita the most prolifically amazing rider I remember once doing a demo with him and he said hey uh, you know, I think I'd like to be a vert rider and I said no you could do it for sure and he just threw himself in and he applied he applied himself to it and now he's incredible he's one of the best of all time Vince Byron the guy that won the X Games last year he's, he was just a park rider and he decided he, wanted, he could do it wanted to try and he's just persevered you know it's not for everybody but there will be you know there'll be one every generation uh, that can Mark do Atkins it. he used to live at Derby I remember Mark right, yeah. does he still ride? Um, I think he does still ride. I'm friends with him on Facebook. I yeah, see, yeah. See him about. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. many good vert riders from England, weren't they? Back then, the 80s we, and 90s. Yeah, the 80s into the night. We, we had a ton of influential people. Yeah, really. yeah. Lee Reynolds, who lives in Lee San Reynolds, Diego. Yeah, yeah. One of my childhood heroes. Great friend of mine these days. Um, Greg Giot, another guy. Um, you mentioned Carlo Griggs, like Neil Ruffle, Craig Campbell. I mean, we had some incredible, incredible Yeah, yeah, definitely. From, from England, from, from the UK back in the day. And when sure. you say when you look at those, um, the old magazines... Man, there's just so many. The pictures don't just stand the test of time, don't they? Absolutely. You see them on Instagram Absolutely. as well. A lot of the when they repost a lot of the stuff. I mean, it's an awful lot of what was being done then that has been lost. There's only I think if Jamie retires, stops riding, like Bestwick, and me and a few of, a few more of us go, I think a lot of those tricks might die until the next generation discovers them and, yeah. and revitalizes them. You know, like a lot of the old classic. Um, air variations. You know, there's, there's like a good classic Ken Ken look back. There's like three people that can do them anymore yeah you know, and stuff like that but but that, that that is what it is you know it's there for for the new generation to rediscover and reimagine and make their own you know that's progression right what um before we move into i want to ask you about the olympics well yeah. that'd be cool to talk about that um who are some of your favorite riders then so like english tell me some of your english you, you favorite mean, riders you mean growing up my favorite uh, well riders. i guess you can yeah a little bit of all of it you know well like growing up i was definitely um Lee Reynolds back in the day was one of my. Are you friends with him here? Obviously, he lives really, in San Diego yeah, as well. Yeah, good friends with Lee. These he has days. some great pictures in the magazine. Now Lee, Lee was just—he was, was a raver, just, right? He was a fo- yeah. He's a DJ these days. Yeah. He, was, he was a force of nature, just wild, but just the nicest, calmest guy. And I, I'll always remember when I was like a thirteen or fourteen-year-old kid. You know, being you know, imagine pros being bugged by little kids. I was that little kid bugging him. Yeah. And he gave me his phone number and he used to answer the phone and talk to me and he would ride with me and he was nice to me and he was helpful. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him about that years later. Like, he taught me how to be a good, responsible professional myself, you know, because kids have memories. Like, conversely, I remember pros who were rude to me back in the day. Who was rude to you? I can't tell you. And I never let it go. 
Like, I remember it forever. All right, tell but, me when we finish but, this. But, but, like, I remember one, like, one of the pros from back in the day. He's no longer with us now, but I remember him kind of mocking me when I was a kid, and I never forgot that. Really? And I promised myself, like, 12, I was 12 years old. So yeah, I promised dick, myself, yeah. I will never do that to somebody. Right. Yeah, I never want to be that guy. Yeah, no, I used to remember the first thing, my first first time I talked to Tim March in 85 at the Kellogg's and I remember the first time I spoke to him you remember the, the guys yeah, yeah. that you have pictures of these are things your that first time you spur you yeah, yeah. And, and it was you. it was positive on my side but I just say you do remember that stuff I mean, don't you? I mean people say things they're all cliches like be nice to everybody on the way up because you'll see them again on the way back down yeah. but I don't even think it's that contrived I just think we're all just kids we all just began as kids with a dream yeah. with, with you know a collective dream here to ride our BMX bikes and some of us have been very 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 lucky and very fortunate to go the places we've been and go as far as we have mm-hmm. and at no point did that make me a better human being or more privileged than anybody right. else do you know what I mean because all along there's other kids with similar dreams and they might not work out for everybody but you know I, I just never wanted to and I think this has a lot to do with that killer instinct about being the champ as well mm. I just wasn't sure I could ever go that extra mile Right to become that character, I had to keep my yeah. you know keep at least one foot on the ground. What well, well, what's the fun? You definitely on, had you a know? good run and continue and continue to having a good run. What about current riders today? Then who do, who do you like these days? You know that it's the face of BMX freestyle. Much like with racing, I'm sure for you has, has changed so much with the training methods. Like everybody has foam pits and padded landing ramps and stuff like this, and training camps and all of this was unthinkable to me as a kid. And even now, I don't use any of that. You know, it, it just not that it's wrong or different I, I, I don't really I've never really arrived at a final yeah. opinion on it it's just it's different and it is what it is and it's the future you know um, but when I look at it there are the riders who I I can read them like a book I can see well that guy's just been at Woodward Camp for the last six years you can tell then where I, their I, I background yeah, yeah I can look at that guy and be like he began as a racer I can see the skills yes I can there. see that like a lot yeah. Stephen Murray I knew yes, he wasn't like straight, Brian like, Foster like, yeah, yeah exactly Brian Foster yes. and Stephen Murray they were never a box jump guy you could tell that they were BMX racers with, with riding skills mm. Okay, and they could piece the whole thing together and I can see that and so there are riders in the modern day I think my very favourite rider is probably Kevin Peraza these days because he can do all of that stuff, yeah. but he can do it with such originality. Is he a street guy? He, he's a park guy and a yeah. street guy and an anything, everything guy, like a ramp rider guy. Is he somebody that will go for the Olympics then? Or? Um, I don't know what the list was. I think he might be in the uh, in the first US team. Oh, so he's already in I the mix then? I know dual nationality as well, so he would definitely be in the Mexican team. Okay. But as far as just being like a gifted rider who's a joy to watch, I've, I've always broken freestyle riders into two different kinds. There are the riders that you that you watch them and you appreciate them and there are the riders that you watch and you feel everything they do and they take you off on a journey they're just so amazing and and Dennis McCoy's always been one of these guys by the seat of his pants you can't take your eyes off him riding you never know what's going to happen and it's so an exhilarating journey that he takes you on and then there are other riders freestyles like Mikey Aitken who you could tell was like a real racer yeah yeah but everything he did was just so gentle and poetic and subtle right and just just I hate to use the word but just beautiful and you couldn't take your eyes off his riding at any point it was like watching Mercury slide down a Mm -hmm. hill you know it was just like incredible and you felt his riding whereas there are other people you can watch him you go oh look he's gone really fast at, at that ramp he's taken off he's spun his handlebars he's done a tail whip and he's upside down and he's landed well that looks really difficult right? but you don't feel anything yeah, do you no, see I get what it. I'm saying it's yeah, really yeah. very mechanical yeah. um, another way of analogy I always use is everybody's just making a picture with their riding everybody starts with a blank canvas mm-hmm. and there are people like Mikey Aitken he just takes a brush 
and in three gentle brush strokes he can create something so beautiful Mm -hmm. you can't take your eyes off it but then somebody else is doing like they're using like digital pixels and they use like 18 million pixels to make this very complicated very difficult very technical picture right wow that's amazing but you know it's 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 passe, you know. They're right. there about it. It doesn't get under your skin, you know. It doesn't have that special. Yeah, something. no, I get it. I guess the same in and maybe, maybe you know, maybe this is a thing like with music as well, or with you know anything. There are just things that you just connect with. You see them and you like them, and you can't really explain them. Right, it's just something special. And yeah, in, yeah, yeah. Inexplicable about them, and that's the kind of thing I look for in a bike rider. Well, you don't need to decide whether they're good or not. You can't take your eyes off their riding. You just love what they do and, and everything that they emote. And Kevin Peraza, who, who I mentioned, is like this. You just you want to be the guy's friend. like, And then you go and talk to him afterwards. He's the nicest, most humble guy you'll ever meet. And he's funny and he's silly and he's daft and he's clearly just having the best day ever on his BMX bike. And he embodies the spirit of BMX. Now, whether it's racing a bike in the Olympics, a BMX bike, or being on a BMX bike in the X Games or soon to be the Olympics, or whether just riding some jumps in, in the backyard, to me, it's always been about that that original spirit, that root. That's the thing that made you and I friends. You know, it's the thing in this world that brought all of us together. It's just, mm-hmm. and I'm not being pretentious or elitist or anything, but to me, that's the thing that permeates through all of it. And sometimes that gets lost in all of this. You know, of course it does, but that's the thing I still try and hold on to. Well, before we, I ask you about freestyle in the Olympics, tell me what's your, like I say, you, you understood racing and you, you went to the races and you followed it. What, what do you see when you watch BMX racing now than in today's, um, today's world? You know, weirdly, I watched, um, I watched... And do you watch Adam now? You watch I, it? Yeah, I watched yeah. The, last Olim- the last Olympics. I watched the trials, um, the time trials... And I didn't get it. Well, they're already out. I mean, that that's the time trials are it, overnight. It, yeah, you know, it, it was the bit. And forgive my ignorance. It, it was prior to the races, but it was everybody doing the timed lap. Yeah, yeah, they right. stopped doing it. And, yeah. And, okay, okay, so that's been and gone. But I watched it, and I didn't really understand. I, I got it. Right. I understood, but I was like, wow. When did it become like this? Oh, okay. All right. Well. Yeah. Switch my understanding and let's pay attention. And you know, I didn't really know what to make of it. But having said that, as a positive, I'll watch like a cutting like a top guy now go around a present day track and not understand that either because mm-hmm. the ability the prolific skill set yeah is so far from me like at the beginning of this when I was talking about racing around the jumping the whoops at the Southport track in 1983 mm. how that became this I mean the speed and, and finesse that I see it's just utterly next level. I guess it's like someone just learning to ride a ramp and then watching the boat riders. It's yeah, like yeah, watching yeah. a mega ramp or something. You know, it's just I, I can't relate to it and can't understand it. But it's so impressive. Okay, so you like it then? All right, um, all right. So BMX freestyles in the Olympics. I just yes. saw all those posts. I mean, I, I didn't understand a lot of the stuff. The the you know the obviously there's a lot of politics. I'm, mm, I'm not de- I'm not involved or. Just read some of the stuff. I read some of the stuff that Matt Hoffman posted yeah. a couple of weeks ago. So, oh yeah, tell us about freestyle in the Olympics and your views on where okay. it's going. It seems like there's a lot of drama as expected already, right? Okay, way, way back at the beginning, a, a long, long... I think it was 2003, um, I was doing shows for Tony Hawk and there's a skateboarder called Andy McDonald and I overheard him in the dressing room at the show talking about the Olympics and I was like, what did you say, Andy? Were you talking about the Olympics? He's like, yeah, yeah, we're trying to get skateboarding in the Olympics. I was like, What? And this, the reason I tell this story is that the conversation I had with him that day, I've always remained of that opinion. I was like, skateboarding in the Olympics, but do you understand what you're saying here? It's like having BMX freestyle in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. It will happen one day, but do you understand what has to happen to skateboarding or to BMX freestyle mm-hmm. to make it 
acceptable to package it correctly so that it will fit into the Olympic mold. It must never, and I said to him, it must never happen in our lifetimes. I, and I was like, over my dead body, honestly. So and you were against it then? And, well, it wasn't that I was against it. I just, the reason I tell this story is that I understood from the very beginning what would have to happen in order to make it fit the Olympics. Yeah. And that was unacceptable to me. So it wasn't that I was saying it must never happen. I knew it would happen one day or Mm. Whether we liked it or not, that that was inevitable. You know, the, every sport. Bega- I mean, football began with one village playing against the other village. There were five hundred people, and the pitch was three miles long. Yeah. You know, <laughs> over the years and over the centuries, they honed it down and they formatted it slightly. Yeah. You know, and and, and then we get to co- to current day, day to how it is. I'm talking about soccer for the American listeners here. Um, <laughs> you know, but but you arrive at a format, and our sports, like we've been involved in our sports almost in. The, their infancy and yeah. the very very early days as they've grown and progressed and developed they've taken left turns right turns they've moved forwards they've moved back a step forwards three steps mm-hmm. you know and they've had to evolve until they become the end result for what BMX racing will one day be recognized as or what BMX freestyle will one day be recognized as and I always thought that the thing that we did and the way that we did it and the spirit involved would have to be chiseled so much to be acceptable into the Olympics, you know, and in all humility, because the Olympics is this great global thing, you know, and, and it's bigger than any one sport, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's the celebration of all sports across humanity. And so for us to be homogenized enough to, to fit and not, and not be like the poor relative or not stand out, it, it would have to change so much that I wasn't sure I would want to be involved in the evolved version, if you see what I mean. Right, yes. So, so I always understood that. And it wasn't that I was for it or against it. I was neither. I just understand what would have to happen. So in the years from then till now, I've, I've become involved in the IBM XFF. Um, oh, you're in... You're oh, absolutely. In, oh, yeah. I didn't know that. No, no, I've been in the meetings. Okay. All, all, I've been privy to everything. I didn't know you was a committee the, member. The negotiations all of these years. I've understood what's been going on. Right. Um, I have understood the steps. I've understood Matt's work and, and the IBM XFF committee, um, the safeguards. The, the, you know, they've been trying to protect, uh, protect it. I understand the people from other sports who've been involved in helping the IBM XFF. I've heard their advice and their advisories and everything. Um, also, similarly on the other side, with the UCI partnering with with FISE, the French organization. I've been attending their events since the late 90s. Yeah. Like, I, I know that organization. So I've been on both sides and yeah. a little bit as well. Um, I, I, I've watched this evolve. And like I said from the beginning, I've always understood what must happen to BMX Freestyle to make it fit. And I've been watching it happen. I always knew that people would fall out. I knew there would be a race to get the jobs. I, I knew there would be divided loyalties. I knew there would be betrayal, subterfuge, all of these things. It was always going to happen. And it wasn't about the people and the characters involved. It was just about the evolution of the thing from A to B. Mm-hmm. It would have to go on this journey. And it was always going to be a destructive journey. And the, the journey continues. Um, so, you know, already we're broken into factions. You, you've got the one side that was frustrated by the IBM XFF's unwillingness to compromise in all the right ways to fit into, not the IOC, but the UCI yes okay, okay. Which, which you know I'm, I'm not necessarily being a critic at this stage it is what it is okay mm. and they need us to fit into their family right sports okay and the IBM XFF has had a it's an ongoing standoff to the point where I'm sure the UCI became frustrated there are other people within BMX who, for whatever reason, have been frustrated because they want to see it in regardless. They're, maybe they're happy with the compromises. It's not for me to speculate about, okay? So what's happened is 
a different organization has said, well, okay, we'll be the BMX freestyle people. And the UCI said, okay, you're saying yes. That's fierce, We're right? Have, yeah, fierce. So they're saying, well, if our conversation with you is going to result in, in progression, we're going to go with you now. So that's what's happened, essentially. Right, I understand. In a nutshell, not, not to say anyone's right, anyone's wrong. Um, it's a difficult situation. But what's ended up happening is is there's been a division within the organization, if you like, of BMX Freestyle. There are two sides now. Two factions have been created. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as much as these factions try to work together, you know, there's definitely friction. That There are different sides to it. Um, and BMX Freestyle is... I mean, I, I arrived at a place where I almost... I always accepted the inevitability that the IOC and therefore the UCI would ultimately take... They would crush us and take control of us, whether we liked it or not. They would find a way to have us if they wanted us, with or without us. I always understood that was going to happen. Now, for better or worse, for right or wrong, that appears to be happening, okay? And we're going through the growing pains. Let's put it that way. These are growing pains right now. Of course, there are disagreements. It's never going to be straightforward. Um, But given that this was always going to happen... the BMX freestyle that's going to end up in the Olympics, you know, I'm not sure that that necessarily relates to what I do right now, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but maybe I'm in the wrong here. Mm-hmm. Maybe just it's because what I do is old hat, or not. Maybe through that getting in is going to help evolve the thing that I do. Who knows? There are so many different di- different perspectives on this. Regardless, I, as an optimist, I would like to think that the mainstream credibility of becoming an Olympic sport is going to bleed down through the sport in terms of facilities, mm-hmm. resources. It's only going to affect a very, very few people at the sharp end of the sport, mm-hmm. but hopefully it could help the rest of the sport. And if you don't want to be involved, you don't have to be. Right. I can still just go and ride at a warehouse on a half pipe with skateboarders like I do today. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't have to change what I do. Um, a street rider can still just go out and ride and slide down. Do you see what I mean? It has no real world effect. Yeah. Other than we feel as though something that's ours is being taken from us. Yes. But then, that, but then yeah. I have a perspective that BMX, I've always told everybody about everything to do with this, that whether it's you in racing, whether it's me with freestyle, any of us, all of us, whether it's the parents, whether it's the kids coming up, BMX is bigger than you or me or the mm-hmm. UCI or any of it. Okay? Yeah. We're all just passing through yeah. and we all, we owe it to BMX to leave it better than we found it. Right. You know, and try and be responsible. Now I, I will speak, um, in all honesty, with every fiber of my being to the point that I believe that Matt is doing everything to be responsible and to protect BMX freestyle. Well, he's kind of the godfather, and, isn't and he? It it's very best, not through a sense of entitlement, but through a sense of responsibility. It's yeah. The shit that's been thrown at Matt, even recently on Facebook this week, people just saying like you've sold BMX out and you, you've betrayed BMX and you've ruined it and you're holding it back. They're saying that about for, Matt Hoffman. For your own self-serving bitter. And, and it's, it's unthinkable. It's unfathomable. The amount of work and his own money and resources Matt's put into trying to protect it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, and it's, and there are people that would say he's, he's doing it unnecessarily or in the wrong way or from a, regardless, he's doing it, in the very best way he, he believes to be the right thing for BMX Freestyle with the backing of the majority of the BMX Freestyle community prior to the faction. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. then there's the other faction. They believe they're doing doing it with the best interest of, of, of the sport at heart. Yeah. And that, you know, everyone's trying to move the thing forward. So it's, it's a very, very difficult time. And I don't want to point fingers because, you know, the thing continues to evolve. And I would love 
everybody to be friends at the end of it whether or not that happens who knows whatever but the important thing for me the most important thing is that BMX freestyle remains intact somehow you know with with some kind of integrity but in its old school form it's always going to regardless the Olympics has nothing to do with that right you know and and what it had I I just feel like I'm, I'm probably rambling a little bit here but going back to the beginning where I said I always kind of understood what would have to happen to it to make it an Olympic sport mm-hmm. that's just going to happen whether we like it or not yeah you know so let's let's just wish it well yeah yeah you know, yeah there, there's no I'm not against it necessarily um, because nothing really has to change but it's finalized form I mean, I mean I, I hear one very compelling argument that the kids coming up now they want to be in the Olympics they deserve a shot at the Olympics yeah stop trying to hold it back you know, and as as a man in my forties, it's a very good point. If yeah, I it is. Yeah, anything back, it's none of my business right. anymore. You know, my my days on a BMX number, BMX bike, are numbered. Surely, right. You know, but like say, it seemed like Matt Hoffman, like what you just kind of shared with us, just wants to make sure it's done right. Right. He's trying to wield his influence as responsibly as possible. Yeah, yeah. He didn't want to hand it over and then turn it into a cheese show, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, and and to me, you know, I wonder how much we can do that. You know, you from from the other side of of the BMX family i mean you can tell me as a racer how much were you able to protect racing well you yeah we, we, we it wasn't you know again i don't i don't know all the politics i just read matt's and, thing and, and, and it's not about him versus yeah him no versus no it, we didn't have any we didn't have the integrity of racing yeah it was well we we didn't have somebody race, like no. matt hoffman to uh, or none of us took it on you know upon themselves to be the kind of like what matt hoffman's doing now speak up and say like, them. we just can't lead it we just kind of all jumped on it and we're like cool this is getting love what's in it for you know what what can what's where's where's my niche what am i going to do and i guess we're all all the guys that were in there at the start kind of that's the way we all thought and did it and now I mean, obviously from my side i always thought it was gonna it looked like it would be a good fit that it would be a natural progression yeah we well, yeah so I've, I've always been surprised to hear that there's been any yeah and it's like what you said you've got different views what i think what i think i've got friends that completely think opposite to what i my thoughts on it sure, you know sure. so um yeah and it's ongoing it's uh, yeah i don't want to get into the whole bmx racing thing with you this is more a bit about you than talking race politics it's no, definitely no but it's bigger than that it's about yeah. bmx and it, it's about the growing pains of the thing that we've we've given our lives to this yeah no we we, we have lived our lives through bmx whether it's racing or free yeah and we've watched it go from i mean we were talking 20 minutes ago about it being dead in the early 90s yeah but they were the funniest times i mean back then there was maybe 250 freestylers left on earth right and now we're talking about it being in the olympics yeah so we've watched it go from Mm. from a baby to you know, so it, it's leaving yeah. home and it's got a job and it's got its driver's license. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I yeah, the, the, within racing, there's so many different debates and problems, and and some people would have completely different, you know, opinions and views on it all. So, and that will continue as it carries on, you know. So, um, Simon, this has been good talking. My daughter's going to be here as of when I do most of my podcasts. She rolls in about three, so we've got a couple of minutes. Uh, okay. We'll, we'll chat again because um, yeah, it was cool. It'd be good to get me, you, and somebody you know, like Grot Bags or somebody together, and that would be fun do a little sure. English history or Timbo or somebody like that. We, um, we could do um, Dale, Simon, and Grot Bags review of BMXs <laughs> from the eighties and the nineties <laughs> into the two thousand UK version, UK version, <laughs> UK edition. All right, give us uh, your last word, Simon. Shout outs. Shout outs. Just anybody and everybody who it's been my good fortune to cross paths with on this. Uh, I'm in my 28th season as a professional bike rider and it's still going. And obviously 30 plus years in BMX and it's been the most wonderful privileged journey. You know, the ups, the downs, all of it. And just um, 
I don't know, just to me, the most important thing is, you know, the faces that have stayed around. I mean, I've known you for 25 years now. You know, we still, we text each other, we laugh, we yeah. joke the same. Well, we both had to deal with a guy through our career called Jamie. You would use well, Jamie Bestwick, me, Jamie Staff. <laughs> so we always laughed about that. Yeah. Jamie Bestwick and I, we turned pro on the same day in 1990, and we've, I always joke to him, like, we're the best of friends these days, but right. I always joke that we've ruined each other's lives ever since. And right. I think similarly, you yeah, and Jamie Yeah, me and Jamie you know, have always, yeah, we've, we've avoided a very same kind of timeline, you know, like, late 80s, we started mm-hmm. racing together and battled right the way through our career. Obviously, you move to America, and then the competition gets deeper, but we're, you know, definitely had a good rivalry, but we're, we've always remained, during those, those years, good friends and respected each other, and we just both wanted the same thing, you know? And so, now we just yeah we just uh, we can just laugh about some of the old stuff. In fact, Jamie's so he's forgot so much. He's just so busy doing what he's doing now. Yeah. He's, he's not really nostalgic. I think I think with Bestwick and I, we we definitely had our ups and downs, and we fell out. And there were years where we didn't like each other and stuff. Right. And See, heads. we never got like that. And, and, yeah. And it wasn't as straightforward as a rivalry. Right. It was just we were in the same space. And yeah. We didn't always see eye to eye yeah and then over the years we've become more and more friends we've got better and better and closer yeah. and closer you start laughing at the more and i think we're actually really kind of fond of each other these days right we quite like each other you know oh that's good you know and and uh yeah i, I got nothing bad to say about jamie you know I, I think the world of him and his riding and everything he's done right and uh at the end of the day it's just a bmx bike you know uh, yeah you know just yeah. silly old bugger we're still friends all right good stuff simon anything else last words no, just just hold on to that spirit of BMX. It's the only it's the only thing you'd be left with at the end is the thing that you began with. Awesome. Cheers, mate. Thanks.